a reading from the Acts of the Apostles. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Three days later, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, yet I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. When they had examined me, the Romans wanted to release me because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to the emperor, even though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is for the sake of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we would like to hear from you what you think, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. After they had set a day to meet with him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other, and as they were leaving, Paul made one further comment. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors, to the prophet Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed listen, but never understand. And you will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Let it be known to you, then, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the teaching about Jesus Christ uh, with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear, hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, b between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, 
and no one can cross from there to us. He said, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn, warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your spirit. And we ask now that as we sit with your scriptures and come into this uh, time, that you would meet us right where we are and awaken us to your love, to your presence. Would you take our thoughts and uh, our lives and would you lift them towards yourself that as you speak to us through your scriptures, that we would have ears to hear what you would say uh, and a desire to listen, that we may become more like your son Jesus as those who love you and love our neighbor in your world. And so we pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. So in my neighborhood in Fairmount, there's a coffee shop, OCF, on Fairmount Avenue. Uh, and there's usually a chalkboard easel sign outside uh, on the sidewalk with a message of the day written on it. And frequently the message of the day will read this. Roses are red, violets are blue, poetry is hard, we have lovely sandwiches. <laughs> and before we start thinking together about the Bible and this text that we've just read, I want us just to think for just a minute about this sign and how we experience it. So just go with me for a minute. This goes somewhere. Why is that sign funny? or clever, or if you don't find it particularly funny or clever, at the very least, why do you understand intuitively that the purpose of the sign has nothing to do with teaching you about the colors of flowers? Well, I bet to this day, and I'd love to actually ask this, but I bet you to this day that um, no one has ever walked into OCF brandishing a white rose, saying, aha, how do you explain this, right? Your sign is insufficiently nuanced. Why? Because we know the poem, and we get it, right? We automatically recognize the whole roses are red, violets are blue thing as a literary formula or a device by which people communicate some other sort of message, whether it's you're sweet or I love you or come eat our sandwiches, right? But what if you'd never heard it before? Or what if you were coming from a cultural background and the whole roses are red, violets are blue thing just was utterly foreign? It might not be quite as obvious what that whole thing's about, right? You might walk by the sign uh, and, and you'd find it strange that maybe it devoted three lines out of four to something that had nothing to do with the sandwiches they're trying to sell. Or, you know, if you, if you didn't have the help of a native speaker, like, who knows? Like, how might you interpret the sign, right? You, you might misunderstand the point altogether. And the reason I bring this up is because in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus that we're considering this morning, um, this, it's one that has just been read in so many weird 
ways over the centuries precisely because generations of interpreters have not understood that what Jesus is doing here is making use of a familiar story. And he's tweaking it. Of course, the problem for us and for many who've come before us is the story that Jesus is retelling here, it's not familiar to us. We are the outsiders, right? Listening in on insider speak that doesn't belong to us. The story would have been familiar to Jesus and to his hearers. It would have been familiar to the gospel writer Luke and his readers, but it's not familiar to us. We don't get the jokes. We don't get the references. And so we may not recognize them as references, at which point we begin to confuse the medium with the message and we begin to miss the point altogether. And one of the biggest, loudest ways that Christians over the centuries have misread and misapplied this parable is that they have read it as instructive in some way for us about what the afterlife is like. And it's just not about that at all. This is not a parable about what the afterlife is like any more than roses or red, violets or blue is a poem about how to identify flowers by their colors. And to read it that way is to utterly miss the point. But what Jesus is doing instead in this parable is he's repurposing a familiar fable about the afterlife. It's one that has its roots in an Egyptian folktale that spread throughout the Jewish world of Jesus' day and got retold in all kinds of various versions. And so if you think of it like the tortoise and the hare or something like that, a familiar fable that can show up in a variety of forms or may even be repurposed in different ways for rhetorical effect, the way Mercedes-Benz took the tortoise and the hare and used it for a Super Bowl commercial a couple years ago. And they changed the punchline from slow and steady wins the race to slow and steady wins the race, forget that, buy a fast car, <laughs> right? So Jesus in this parable, he's making a rhetorical move that's sort of like that here. And he retells and reinterprets a familiar fable about the afterlife. And then he changes the punchline in order to say something important about the present day life of his hearers. And his immediate hearers are the Pharisees, which is important. Because in this parable, Jesus is directly addressing the religious leaders, the moral and the theological authorities of the day, and he's saying, in effect, you may not be as close to God and God's kingdom as you think you are. Because what you love and what God loves are very different. In the verses just before this parable, Luke has just described the Pharisees as lovers of money. And he's described a scene in which the Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus for his teaching in the parable that we read last week. The parable of the dishonest manager that ends with this punchline, right? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so the Pharisees, Luke describes as lovers of money, they start ridiculing Jesus for this teaching. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he says, look, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts. For what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. And then a moment later, he tells them this parable. And of course, as we think about 
this, even just before we even get into the parables, we just think about that situation, that setting. And we think about our own context, right? Just think about the, the church in the U.S. today, the religious leaders, the moral authorities, the theological authorities of our day. It's not that hard. We don't have to look too carefully to see that our apple doesn't fall too far from the Pharisee's tree, right? Religious arrogance, love of money, fear of losing political power, failure to care for the least of these. These aren't just old problems that plagued the religious people of Jesus' day. These are the same very cancers that threaten the life and health and power and witness of the church today. Those aren't just problems out there. Those are problems in here. And so what Jesus is addressing in them is also something that needs to be addressed in us. And to address it, Jesus tells this story. There was a rich man who basically had it made. He enjoyed all the creature comforts of a luxurious lifestyle. In other words, he was a winner, right? He was a big deal, a mover and a shaker, someone everyone noticed and wanted to be like. And then at the edge of his property was a locked gate, And on the outside of that gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was hungry and he was covered with sores and he waited there outside the gate for the rich man's garbage to be brought out so that he could eat it. And the dogs would come up and lick his sores which meant that he was an unclean person. This isn't like, these aren't cuddly dogs. These are mongrel dogs or security dogs. And they're coming up and they're licking his sores, which makes Lazarus ritually unclean and therefore an untouchable outsider. So Lazarus is a loser. He's a loser. He's an invisible man. He's someone that the world has discarded and has turned a blind eye to. But here's the thing. As the story unfolds, both the rich man and Lazarus die, at which point they're equally dead, right? And the angels carry Lazarus off to be with Abraham, Abraham's bosom. It's a common way uh, that the Jewish people of the time would have spoken of where they go after death um, into being with God's people. So the angels carry Lazarus off to be with Abraham, and then the rich man finds himself in Hades. But the rich man's a winner, right? He's not a loser. And he's used to ordering his servants around to get what he wants. And so even from Hades, he calls out to Abraham and says, hey, send Lazarus over to me. I need something. Send him over here to cool me off because I'm, I'm dying over here in this heat. And then Abraham responds to the rich man's son, Um, you might notice that there's been a great reversal. Turns out that God loves the poor, and theirs is the kingdom of God. And you opted out of that whole program. The locked gate that, that kept Lazarus on the outside of the life you enjoyed has now become a great chasm that keeps you out of the life he enjoys now. But of course, nobody tells the rich man no, right? So he keeps pushing. All right, well, if you won't send him here, he's still negotiating, send him to my family, right? Send him to my people. 
and let them know that their whole investment strategy and their whole your best life now philosophy is just bankrupt so that they won't make the same mistake that I've made. Abraham responds again. They have the scriptures. Like, they've heard the story a million times. They should listen to that. The rich man continues to protest. He says, no, 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 Father Abraham, that's not, that's not how you make an impression on an audience. Let me, listen to me. I'm telling you. Trust me. I'm a mover and a shaker. I know what's going to turn their heads. Send them somebody from the dead. It's going to blow their mind. They will definitely listen if you do that. And then this is where Abraham throws in this new punchline. No, they won't. Send them from someone from the dead. They won't, that won't blow their minds and change them at all. Resurrection isn't a parlor trick for convincing the unconvinced. If they're not heeding the story that Moses and the prophets have been telling all along about me and my family and what God has called us to do in the world, they're not going to be convinced even if somebody comes back from the dead. Those who've grown presumptuous upon their identity as children of Abraham, but have not heeded the story and God's vocation for them, are not going to change even if something dramatic happens. Abraham drops the mic, end of scene, right? That's the story. Now, there's nothing in the story that directs us toward identifying this Lazarus with Jesus' friend Lazarus that appears in the Gospel of John. Um, Lazarus is a relatively common name, so it's, it's not like this is definitely supposed to be read as the same person or anything, and neither Luke nor John drops any hints that we're supposed to read them in connection. But it's interesting because this is the only parable in all the parables where people are named. Lazarus and Abraham are the only two names that appear in any parables, and it's just hard, as students of the scriptures, it's hard not to let our mind wander, right, into just associating stories like these, and when we do that, it's really fascinating to, to remember the story of Jesus' friend, Lazarus, because what does that, what is that story? Lazarus dies, and Jesus brings him back from the dead, and the Pharisees see it. And are their minds blown and convinced of something they were previously unconvinced about? No. They're actually further enraged, and that becomes a precipitating event, and them saying, no, we're definitely putting this guy to death. It has exactly the opposite effect. The Pharisees' problem is that they're so entrenched in their own way of thinking about God and themselves and the world and they're so committed to their own ideas and their own agendas that they're unwilling to recognize God when he actually appears in their world. When God actually shows up in Jesus, the God experts are the most resistant to him. And that's, that's something that should give us pause as church people, I think. And it should make us ask the question, am I paying attention to the God who is there? Am I awake to the presence of God in my life and in the world, or am I simply on autopilot? Am I simply in the rut of my own way of making sense of life? It reminds me of that story. I, we've shared this before at City Church, the story of, of Joshua Bell, the violinist who played in the, in the Washington, D.C. metro station. If you haven't heard the story, basically Joshua Bell 
is one of the world's premier violinists who makes a handsome living playing the world's finest venues, right? He sells out all the big places and he plays his multi-million dollar Stradivarius violin for sellout crowds. And one day he decided that he was going to take his multi-million dollar instrument and go down into the Washington DC metro station and just play for free during the morning commute. And there was a write-up in the Washington Post about it a number of years back. And basically what happened is he's playing this beautiful music. It's just inappropriately beautiful for the situation. And almost nobody stops. Almost nobody notices the beauty in their midst. Why? They're doing their thing. It's the morning commute. They've got places to be, right? They've got their own agendas. They've got their own calendars. They've got their, their whole plan that's in motion. And they don't have any margin for beauty. They don't have any ability to stop and recognize that there's been this kind of invasion of something truly beautiful into their midst. And as you and I think about our own lives, especially as we're considering the Pharisees and their own stuckness and their own inability to wake up to Jesus' presence in their midst, as you think about our own lives, think about your life, are you able to discern the beauty of God who makes himself present to you right now and all the time? The God who's actually with you who's actually active in your midst and calling you into a life with him? Or are you so caught up in doing your own thing that you don't have space for the beauty of God? Where have you grown sleepy toward God? Where do you see see yourself moving so quickly or so routinely through life that You're unable to pay attention to God's presence. Or a way that I've been thinking about it recently, how how have you stuffed your life so full that you don't have much margin for giving and receiving God's love? It's just something I've been noticing recently about myself is my tendency to stuff my life and spread myself thin that takes me into places where the reality of my limits come invading my peace of mind often in really uncomfortable ways because I hurt people or I neglect important things or I'm just moving too fast or doing too many things where I'm realizing it's just all about doing my thing and I'm moving too fast through the world too inattentively through life and there's no space for beauty would I recognize God if he showed up in my midst and this parable is so helpful for us, and I hope it's helpful for you as it is as helpful for me this week. It's a, it's a parable that helps us to wake up. It helps us wake up to God because it shows us something of what God is like and what God's kingdom is like and what his grace is like and what it might actually look like if we did wake up and join him and what he's doing in the world. And so this parable, it's an invitation to see the world through new eyes, to see God through new eyes, to see ourselves through new eyes, to see our circumstances and our neighbors through new eyes. See the love and the grace of God in this parable. 
Think about Lazarus for a minute. Lazarus, he's God's beloved. But there's nothing about his life that would make you think that. Just look at him. Look at who he is, right? He's the invisible man, but God sees him. He's a man of sorrows, but God keeps him, even though the world has cast him aside. And so if you want to identify for a minute with Lazarus, He's not the character Jesus is trying to get us to identify with in this parable, but just, but just go there for a minute. Identify with Lazarus for a minute. Think about your own experiences of suffering in your own life. Like, how do you make sense of those? How do you, how do you relate to the hard things in your life? Do you lean into the wisdom of this world, or do you lean into the wisdom of Jesus for how to make sense of sorrow? Lazarus, he's the sufferer, he's poor, he's covered in sores, he's the one that if he's, if he's looking at his life, if anyone's looking at his life through the lens of worldly wisdom, you would say this is someone forgotten by God. And maybe you found yourself in those situations where you're looking upon your own experiences of suffering and you're saying, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Or you're looking upon the experience of a friend or a neighbor who's just walking through unspeakable hardship and you're saying, God, where are you? How do you make sense of the suffering? Well, this parable just gives us this window into a very important reality of God's kingdom, which is simply that our circumstances in life do not speak most truly about who we are. It doesn't, those, those are not indicators of God's love or lack of love toward us. If anything, actually, as we begin to recognize the reality of the crucified Savior who is God's beloved, we recognize that God's beloved are those who walk in the way of the cross. And so as we begin to identify with Lazarus, as we begin to identify with our crucified Savior and experience our own suffering through new eyes, we begin to see that even in the midst of our tragedies, we're in the good company of our Savior, the man of sorrows who walks with us. But identify for a minute with the rich man, too, and see the love and grace of God in this parable as we think about identifying with him, right? Look at this rich man. What's he doing? He's sitting there in the lap of luxury. He's enjoying all his creature comforts. And there's this gate at the edge of his property, and on the outside of the gate is the invisible man, the dirty man, the poor man, the man who can't come in and mess up his world, right? Who is invisible to you? Think about who among God's beloved children do you find yourself withholding love from? And how do you need to awaken more and more to seeing your neighbor through these new eyes that God gives us? And let's think about it like this. What are the gates? What are those locked gates in your life that keep people on the outside? Whether they're relational gates, just the actual stonewalling and stiff-arming that we do with one another, or whether they're like 
social structure kind of gates. I mean, let's face it, we live in a society that puts the poor people in other sections of the neighborhood and puts the sick people in big buildings that we don't go into generally or puts everyone who's high maintenance and other and different. We have a world that keeps them invisible to us unless we cross through the gates. What are the gates, both close in and far out, that are blocking you from neighbors, that are blocking you from God's beloved? And how are those gates becoming in you a great chasm that separates you from participating with God in what he's doing in the world? See the love and grace of God. But see also in this parable, this contrast between what God loves and what the world teaches us to love. Remember, Jesus sets up this whole parable by talking to the Pharisees and saying that what is prized by human beings is considered an abomination by God. God knows your hearts. And then Jesus tells this story, and much of the power of the story resides in its stark contrast between two very different visions of the good life. One that is outwardly prosperous, that's achieved by human efforts, and that ultimately perishes. And then another vision of the good life that's more about God looking on the heart, right? It's more about internal fullness. And it's received as a gift rather than being achieved by effort. And instead of perishing, it actually endures. God wants your heart. He wants your whole self. And as we look at the story of Jesus and as we continue reading this parable on into the rest of the Gospel of Luke and we continue to consider this in light of the fullness of the life of Jesus, what we recognize is that God wants your whole self and calls you to himself, but he wants you so much that he's given you his whole self. He's crossed the chasm for you, for us, for this world. He's flung open the gates so that all the obstacles between us and our neighbors would come crumbling down as God has made peace by the blood of the cross. And he said, look, I've crossed the chasm for you. I've flung open the gates for you and for the world. Live in my love and go out and carry that into the world. Live with me and live like me in the world. This is the story of God's kingdom that has been unfolding not only from the days of Abraham and on into Moses and the prophets, as Jesus talks about in this parable, but comes in fullness in the person of Jesus. Where right before this parable, Jesus says, look, the law and the prophets were up until John, John the Baptist, but now is the time of the kingdom. And the call is this it's this summons to join Jesus in this way of death and resurrection life, of living in the love and presence of God, that we would cross through those locked gates that have now been flung open, and that we would love our neighbor as God has loved us in Christ. Just think about your week that's upcoming. What would change? What would change for you this week if you began to awaken afresh to the love of the God who loves you like that? How would your relationships change if the locked gate became an open door?
How would you relate to your wealth, your money, your dreams, your ambitions differently if you began to recognize the way that God has stewarded all of his wealth toward you in becoming poor so that in him you might become rich and calls you to love others like that? This is the great mystery and the great calling that is ours in Christ. And my prayer for us is that by God's grace and his spirit, that he would enliven us and awaken us. That we would actually recognize the beauty in our midst and be blown away. That we would want to take part in it. Let's pray. God, give us grace, we ask, to notice you. Give us grace to desire you. Give us grace to slow down and to put on the shelf all of our agendas of self-promotion and self-protection and self-actualization so that we might simply rest in you. And in resting in you that we might find life. God, would you help us to see through new eyes the spirit of Phariseeism that lives in each of us? And would you help us to put it to death? that we may rise with you into a whole other way of being in the world, one that actually gives life, one in which we find life and joy in your presence. God, give us peace, we ask, through the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.